So let's pray before we get started. Father, we come to you, and I, I am so grateful, the God, that you have chosen me, to, that you would die for me on the cross. God, I deserve nothing of that sort. God, I've sinned so much in my life. I've done, I've done so much wrong. My heart has been filled with so much wickedness. But Lord, you have washed me clean by your blood that you shed on the cross. And God, I thank you so much for that. And Lord, I pray that as we, your people who have been called by your name, we come here and we, we spend time in your word to hear your voice. This is, this is not religion. This is not um, just what our culture thinks of church. This is our Father speaking to his children. And God, we need so much to hear from you today. We need so much, your Holy Spirit, to teach us the truths that are in your word. God, your word is is the deepest and most powerful and living thing in this entire world, but it is, it is hidden from the world. In other words, we need to seek you with an open heart and, and God, with a full heart of full surrender before you. So, Lord, whatever you have for us in the word today, Lord, we will receive it. We'll believe, Father, that you are real and that you have a, a deep affection and love for us. Unlike anything we have ever ever known in this world. Father, we love you. We turn our eyes to you and our hearts to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we have been studying the life of Abraham, and we've seen Abraham has made a ton of mistakes in his life. He was called by God when he was in Babylon, in Ur, way down at the corner in Babylon. And God called him and said, get away from your family and come to a land I'll show you. I love you. I've chosen you, Abram. So come with me. And Abraham, he, he went, but he took his family and then he went up to Haran and he, he waited for his dad to die. So he waited maybe even 15 years before he really started walking with the Lord. Well, his fa dad finally dies. And so he enters into the promised land. He says, well, better get on my way. So he goes into the promised land, and he starts to have a real relationship with God. He starts to offer sacrifices and, and remember how, how holy God is. And so there needed to be a sacrifice, so he built an altar. He started to have a relationship. But immediately, a famine came. And the famine, he started freak out, saying, oh my gosh, I'm in the land God's called me to be in, but there's a famine, so I'm out of here. And he went down into Egypt. And as he was in Egypt, he said, she's my sister, not my wife. And the Pharaoh's like, all right, come here, baby. So they have this bad time in Egypt. God plagues Pharaoh. Abraham leaves with his tail between his legs, ashamed. He's failed. He didn't trust the Lord. His wife's probably really mad at him. And he comes back to the promised land. And in the promised land, he comes back to the place where he had built an altar. And he, he kind of rebuilds that altar. He comes back to that altar, that place of worshiping God. And that was last week's study. It was called Come Back and Get Right. And we talked about how Abraham was able to get back to his relationship with God because God loves him. God didn't say you have to wait in time out 45 minutes. No, he invited Abraham in. He drew Abraham in. And now we see Abraham, he's acting more righteously. He's spending time with the Lord. He's, he's exploring the land that God has given him, the whole land of Canaan. He's going around and his nephew Lot and him have separated. And Lot went to go live in a place that looked really good called Sodom. And that is where we are at now. In Genesis chapter 14, the, study of the, the title of today's study is called, Who the Heck is Melchizedek? So, I like that one. And what we will find is we are going to find the first war in the Bible, which reminds me, how does an octopus go to war? Well-armed. That was for Jonathan. All right. <laughs> Genesis chapter 14 says, And it came to pass in the days of Armaphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of El Elisar, and Char... Let me practice one. Chedorlaomer. How, that was horrible, but 
You can't do any better. So, <laughs> um, the king of Elam and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shineb, king of Adma, and Shemerber, <laughs> king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Chedorlamer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year of Chedorlamer, the kings that were with him, uh, and they attacked the Rephaim in Astaroth, Canarim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Shiva, Kerathim and the Horites in the mountains of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Now, there's a whole point to this, so hang on with me, okay? I'm going to keep reading, but I'm going to come back and tell you who all these people are. It's pretty cool. Verse 7, Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they attacked all the country of the Malachites, and also all the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazon, Tamar. And the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Sidim against Chedorlamer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, Armathel, king of Shinar, and Ariak, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of asphalt pits, and the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and some fell there. And the remainder fled to the mountains, and they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. All right. So in this, we have a little historical battle going on. And what we have is in the land of Babylon was these four kings. And all the, the locations mentioned, I looked them all up and studied them, and they're all different cities in Babylon, okay? So this is where Abraham is from. Remember, he's from Ur in Babylon. And so these were like his homies, these were like the people that he grew up with. He knew these kings. He had passed through all their lands and all their countries and all their cities as he was coming through. So they knew Abraham. They were bros. And they're coming to his new land where he's in. And they journey up over the Mesopotamia, up over Mesopotamia and then down into Canaan. And it describes these five kings are just kicking butt and taking names. They are all over the place. They're, they're, they're beating up all these other kings. And so these four kings that are right by Sodom and Gomorrah in the southern parts of Canaan, they decide we are going to fight against these kings. And so they have these war. But the five kings prevail and they win. And they take all the stuff and a bunch of prisoners, and they're journeying back up now to Babylon. So they're trying to get back to Babylon, and now they've established their dominance, and they're ready to go. But I want us to notice for a minute that where the first war in the Bible rises from, and that is greed, lust, pride, and ambition— in James chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, we have what the, the Bible tells us what every war is from. And it says in James chapter 4, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. So greed and lust and pride and ambition, they're not of God. Yet people commonly use wars and dictators and, and the consequences of these actions as reasons why they don't believe in God or, or don't follow him. I hear many people all the time say, well, I, how can I believe in a God when the Holocaust happened? Or there's wars with little kids getting killed. But little do they know that the fact is that these wars and atrocities don't disprove God. They actually prove his existence. These things violate what each one of us knows inside our hearts and our consciences to be true. That there is right and there is wrong. And that these wars are wrong. So that means something is right. And that something must meet a right or a perfect standard. And what is that standard? That standard is God. So the fact that there are bad things in the world actually prove to us that there is a God and that he's perfect and loving. All those things we can deduce just from the fact that you feel in your heart, deep down inside, 
that something is wrong. When we hear about sex trafficking, when we hear about abuse, it's inside us. We know it's wrong, right? When you see someone being abused, you want to step in and make it right because God put that inside us. We are made in his image. We have that part inside us. Logically, the fact that we think anything at all is wrong proves there's a perfect God who created us with morality. Wars produce a thirst for more. They never provide satisfaction for the combatants. And so let me ask you these questions. Do you struggle with fighting to get your own way? When you're at work or when you're at home or even if you're alone with God, do you struggle with fighting to get your own way? Do you struggle with trying to overpower people to get what you want? Or do you know someone who does? God tells us that if we would just go to him, we would receive everything that we really need. We never have to look to others to get what we need. He desires to be our provider. That name in the Bible, God, our provider, we'll, we'll see that later in the book of Genesis. Abraham will actually call God, God, my provider, and that's called Jehovah Jireh. And you guys may have heard that name before. He wants to be our provider. Jehovah Jireh literally means the Lord will see to it. In other words, if I have a need, he'll see to it that it's taken care of. But we don't like it when he says, you don't need that right now, do we? We don't like being told no. But to those who will ask him and wait upon him in full faith and expectation, they will never be disappointed with the answer. He's a father who knows how to give good gifts. He is Jehovah Jireh. He will see to it. So many times, he begs us to come to him and ask for what we need. How do I know if I'm asking the right things? Can I ask for a million bucks? If you are abiding in Christ and spending time in his word, his spirit will teach you what to ask for. And he'll prompt you to pray for very specific things. And if he prompts you, you pray for those things and you ask in faith. If the Spirit wants you to ask for a fortune to do his work, then you'll be able to ask for a fortune in total peace, knowing that it's according to his word, in his name, according to his character. If God has put it on your heart to build an orphanage for a thousand kids because you saw a need and God, that's what God really put on your heart, then you ask him for those thousand those whatever money you need and watch what the Lord does because he'll answer that prayer if you just want a Ferrari probably not how do I know then if I'm abiding in Christ if I can just abide in the Lord and his spirit will teach me what to ask for how do I know that I'm abiding in Christ the answer is are you worshiping not just singing songs but are you worshiping with your whole life? Do you obey without reservation when God tests you or allows you to be tested? Do you hesitate or negotiate or argue or resist and in so doing, obey, avoid obeying immediately? You know, those are, that's a, a test. You can kind of test your own heart. Do I, do I obey God or do I negotiate? Well, these, are, these wicked kings that we read about here in Genesis 14, they know nothing about the victorious spiritual life that God has for them. Uh, they're just full of selfish and violent desires. And so that's what we read there. But we find here in verse 12 that they also took Lot, Abram's brother, brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and they departed. Well, I have a couple things to say to Lot. If you weren't living in Sodom, you wouldn't have been caught up in this mess. Remember to choose your friends wisely. I'm not saying you don't have friends in the world. Just watch where you're living. Watch where you're abiding. We abide in Christ and his body. We're just pilgrims in this world. What's really funny, or kind of sad actually, is that Lot doesn't even learn from getting kidnapped. He's, we're going to find out. He gets rescued from this. But we find in the next chapter, he's right back living in Sodom. Why? Lots. 
Probably his salty wife, I don't know. That was a good one. That was just right off the top of my head. All right, verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. This is the first time the word Hebrew is mentioned. For uh, that means son of Eber. You know, uh, for he had dwelt by the tabernacle of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshkol, the brother of Aner. And they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants. So this shows that Abraham was quite wealthy who were born in his house. He went in, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now this is way up in the northern part of Israel. So he chased as far as all the way up to the north side of Israel. It's quite a journey. He divided his forces against them by night and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So that's really far north. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. Don't forget the women and the people. And as the king of Sodom went out, and the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley, after he returned from the defeat of Cherodorlamer and the kings who were with him. So, we're going to see a little bit more about the king of Sodom in, in, very shortly, so stay tuned, okay? But let's read the next verse, verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Well, who the heck is Melchizedek? The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 4, that we are to consider how great this man was. We're going to go check out that verse in Hebrews a little bit later today. But... For now, I want us to just remember that the Bible says your job and my job, if we want to grow in the Lord, is to consider how great Melchizedek was. Now, this is the crazy thing. Those three verses we just read is all we have about Melchizedek. And yet the Bible says, dig. Dig down and find something because there's something there and it'll freak you out when you, when you finally see it. It's going to bless you. It's going to blow your mind. He says, consider how great this man was, Melchizedek. Well, we, from right here in Genesis 14, we have no idea who this man is. We don't know where he came from. We don't know how he got there. We, we don't know how he became a worshiper and a priest of the Most High God or how Abraham got to know him. Three, three verses in Genesis is all we have. Three verses in the entire Old Testament. Well, one more. We'll see a fourth verse, but we'll get to that in a minute. This is like a huge Easter egg in the Bible. Everyone loves Easter eggs. They show forethought. They bring something out of context, or they bring something in context that was out of context. It's like, why is that there? It's a secret. It's a, it's a hidden thing. God says, it's the glory of kings to seek out deep truths in the book of Proverbs. So God doesn't, he doesn't just put everything out there easy to understand. Why not? Because he's wonderful. He's glorious. And he hides some of that for the person who wants to seek it out. The person who wants to investigate. Remember, he told Abraham, I want you to explore the land. Well, this is the land for us to explore it. So... Abr Melchizedek, he brings out some bread and wine, and then he blesses Abraham, and we're going we're gonna to kind of look in depth at what those things mean. So let's put on our Sherlock Holmes thinking caps, put these scriptures about Melchizedek in our old tobacco pipes, and smoke it up. In other words, let's just get serious about learning and investigating and, and loving a deep and powerful episode in the Holy Word. So let's observe what we see first about Melchizedek. Just from these scriptures, we learn nine things about him. Number one, his name is Melchizedek, which means 
king of righteousness. Number two, well, we're going to go deeper in each of these things. Number two, we learn his title is king of Salem, which means king of peace. Number three, we know that he brought out bread and wine. Hmm. Number four, we learn that he was a priest of the Most High God. That word in Hebrew is El Elyon, which means it's not a higher power. It's the highest God. You see, you can't logically believe in just a higher power. You can't. Because if there was a higher power, logically, he would have to be the one where standards come from, and standards we know are perfect. So whatever higher power is, there has to be he has to be perfect, and there can't be multiples. There can only be one. It's a long train of logic, and there's good books out there that can help you kind of wrestle through that. But suffice it to say, if you believe in a higher power, you actually believe in the one true God. Number five, he blessed Abraham. Number six, he said Abraham was of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Number seven, Abraham blessed God. Or no, I'm sorry, Melchizedek blessed God. Number eight, he knows that God delivered Abram's enemies into his hand. And number nine, he received a tithe of all that Abram owned. Clues, 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 okay? So what are we to make of this? Well, let's investigate. Elementary, my dear white flag. By the way, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson were busy with yet another completed... Uh, completed case, suddenly Holmes seized a chunk of blood-splattered limestone from the ground. What is it, Holmes? asked Watson eagerly. Holmes turned and replied gravely, it's sedimentary, my dear Watson. Well, let's look at those specific things that we learned about Melchizedek. Number one, his name is Melchizedek, which means the king of righteousness. A name is the identity of a person. I only know one king of righteousness. I don't know about you, but I only know one who reigns perfectly. Only one whose life could be described as perfectly right in every way, and that's just Jesus. In fact, most politicians or leaders or kings are pretty lame. What's the difference between a good politician and a bad politician? We all know it's just a headstone, right? Well, Jesus, he, though, is a king, and he is righteous, which means Jesus always does what's right. He always brings righteousness wherever he goes. His kingdom is one of righteousness. Everything he rules over can be described as perfect. He is the perfect leader. We pray, let your kingdom come, don't we? What we're saying is, would you make everything right? Because when I look around at the world, it's not right yet. There's a lot of wrong in my life. There's a lot of wrong in our world, in our city. And what we're praying is, bring everything under the rule of your right ways. Everything in my world, everything in my own life, everything in my own heart, I want you to rule and reign over me. So, just his name, Melchizedek. Who does that make me think of? Jesus. Number two, his title is the King of Salem, which means King of Peace. Salem, Shalom, they all mean peace in the Hebrew language. Jerusalem means God is our peace. This is where Melchizedek was ruling in Jerusalem, before Jerusalem was Jerusalem. This guy, Melchizedek, was ruling there. If his name is King of Righteousness and his title is King of Peace, this is starting to lead me in a direction in my investigation of who this guy, Melchizedek, is and what he's pointing me to. This is an awesome Easter egg. In Psalm 76, 2, we have a verse that tells us in Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place is Zion. Jesus, his whole kingdom can be described as peace. Peace. 
Let me give you three ways that, that his kingdom is a peaceful kingdom. Number one, he brings peace to the war between God and man. Romans 5.10 says, For when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been now reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The second way he brings peace, he brings peace between men who fight with each other. Mark 9.50 says, Salt is good, but if salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Salt speaks of the life of Jesus Christ. And he says, you can't fake it. Salt, if it loses its saltiness, if you just try to live like Jesus, it's going to lose its flavor. No, you have to actually abide in Christ and have his life flowing out from you. And then what's going to happen? You're going to have peace with one another. Third way, he brings peace to my own heart. John 14, 27 says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So this king of righteousness is also a king of peace. He's so good at bringing peace. He's so awesome at it. And how does he do it? Number three, he brings out the bread and the wine. He brings out the bread and the wine. Which, I'm sure in your mind, you know exactly where this is going. Over here we have the communion that we're going we're gonna to take later after, after we're done learning. We're going to engage with God. Because Jesus has brought us bread and wine too. In Matthew 26, it tells us about this. It says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and he blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. The purpose of Melchizedek's visit to Abram was communion. In other words, what did Melchizedek want to do with Abraham? He wanted to have a deep relationship with him. In the East, eating together was a sign of deep friendship and intimacy. And, and what just happens to be the whole foundation of this deep relationship? Well, what does the bread and the wine speak of? What is this relationship built upon? The bread and the wine, what does that mean? The bread speaks of the sacrifice and the wine speaks of the life of God. Sacrifice, death for sin. When we take and we eat the cracker today, we are remembering the sacrifice that was made on my behalf, my substitute, his body broken because I deserve to die. We remember that. That's the foundation of our life with God. And then the life, the blood, the, the wine gives, speaks of the new covenant, the new life that God gives to us after we accept and believe in his sacrifice. That's why we always take the bread first. I always used to get confused when I was a kid. Wine first, bread first, I don't know, ah, I'm confused. It's important. We take the bread first because we remember the sacrifice first. Then when we believe the sacrifice, when we appropriate that to our life and say, that was for me, then the new life, the new grape juice. It always washes down the cracker, right? Because the cracker's real dry. The cracker doesn't taste very good. It's probably like eight years old. It's real stale. doesn't matter because the juice refreshes. It's the new life that speaks of God's uh, new covenant, his grace in us. This is the deepest form of relationship you can actually have with anyone. Receiving the sacrifice and love of Jesus and then letting his very life grow and explode from inside your heart. Here, I believe that Jesus is explaining to Abram how he will eventually provide full atonement for sin through his own body and blood. The fourth thing we learn is that he was a priest of the Most High God. Again, that word El Elyon. Most high God. Melchizedek was already a priest, already serving God and serving man. 
because that's what a priest does. A priest is a go-between between God and man. He's providing a way for that relationship to be fruitful and effective, for men to be able to talk to God and for God to be able to communicate to men. That's what a priest took care of. He handled that. Most people think about Jesus, and they only think about the atonement. They only think about what he did on the cross, paying for their sins, which is great. Oh, but there's so much more. They remember what he did, but they don't always think about what he's doing right now. There is a big difference between atonement and priesthood. Real quick, atonement is a thing of death. Priesthood is a thing of life. Atonement is once for all, finished, done at the cross. Priesthood is continuous. Atonement was accomplished on the earth. Priesthood is carried out in heaven. Atonement was for the sinner, and priesthood is for the saint. Jesus is amazing because he's willing to provide both of those services for us. He saves us and then sanctifies us. He justifies us and then changes us. He starts us and then he finishes us. This, to me, is where the evidence is starting to pile up with this guy Melchizedek and who he is. Because Psalm 110, verse 4, is the only other verse that mentions Melchizedek in the Old Testament. And it says, As the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This psalm is a messianic psalm, which means this psalm was written hundreds of years before Jesus was born, but it was about Jesus. It was about the Messiah, this, the, the promised one who would come and save everyone from their sins. And he says here, God gives us an insight to Jesus, and he says, Jesus will be just like Melchizedek. He will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He will serve as a mediator between God and man with his bread and wine. That's how he'll serve as a priest. See, the Jews knew a lot about priests. They had a ton of priests, and they were all Levites from one of the tribes. There was 12 tribes of Israel. One of the tribes was Levi, and all of the priests, all the children of Levi were priests. Jesus wasn't a Levite. We're going to find out a little bit more about that in a minute. He was from the tribe of Judah because he was the king. But he also serves as a priest, but he's a different kind of priest. Because all those priests, you know what they had to do? They had to constantly offer sacrifices for sin. In other words, their whole life was all about taking a lamb, killing it, praying for someone that God would forgive them. Here, you sin, let me take a lamb, kill him, birds for you because you're poor. I mean, all, all these kinds of things, they were just always for sin, always atonement. That's how they, and, and it never took away anyone's sins. It only covered them up for a little while and helped people have a little relationship with God until their next sin and they had to go get another lamb and bring it in. It was an exhausting life, an exhausting relationship with God. But people couldn't just come to God with their sin and say, accept me. God, you can't. God can't. So there had to be that sacrifice. But Jesus and Melchizedek, they are a different kind of priest, and they're a priest that comes with bread and wine. Bread and wine. We'll come back to that in just a minute. The fifth thing that we look at is that he blessed Abraham. In other words, he showed Abraham favor, or you could just say he loved Abraham. He loved him. This teaches us about the motivation of Jesus. He just simply loves you. He sees you and he loves you. He sees all the dirty stuff and he loves you. He sees everything and he loves you. Luke chapter 24 says, He led them out as far as Bethany and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And Jesus, he's just like Melchizedek. 
Melchizedek just I love you, Abram. I just want to bless you. And, and Jesus is, the last thing he wants his disciples to remember before he ascends into heaven is just, guys, I love you so much. I love you so much. Jesus loves you and lives to bless us with his love. He's not hoping you get better. He wants you to receive his love first. And then he'll take care of making you better. That's how it works. Coming to church is not about, hey, you all need to be better people. That is never the point of church. The point of church is for you to get it through your hard heart and me to get it through my hard head and hard heart that God just loves us. And he has done everything for us. And he will never stop. And when we receive that, our lives are changed. Man, we're not going the places we used to. We're, we're, we're filled with a new life. That's the wine. Awesome. And then John 13, 1. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come and that he should depart from the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I just want you guys to see again that the last thing Jesus has on his mind before he has to go to the Father with the last few moments he has on the earth, all he cares about is loving his disciples. Loving them. That's all he cares about. He's not like, Peter, you're going to screw up. Peter, you got all this stuff coming. You don't even know Paul yet and he's going to freak you. You guys got, oh my gosh. No, he only cares that they understand his deep an abiding love for them. That's what he cares about. His first priority is loving them. He takes care. He's going to take care of the sacrifice they needed. He's going to provide the bread. He takes their face in his hands and makes sure that they understand when he says, I love you. In John 15, 9, he says, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Just abide in my love. Abide in my love. The Christian life is not difficult. It's remembering every day that he loves you. And then just respond to it. That's all it is. Whenever your relationship with God becomes about something other than his love, you have misstepped. It's not about how much you love God. He will develop that. This, that, that will come naturally. You can only love him as much as you abide in his love. Remember and engage with his love. Trust his love. Wonder at his love. Explore his love, which is what we do when we take communion. The sixth thing we learn is that he said Abraham was of most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. In other words, Abram, you belong to God. Abram has his identity in God now. And God was, wasn't ashamed or embarrassed about that. God was happy to have a friend like Abraham, as he is with you. God loves you so much that he just wants to be your friend. He's not embarrassed about you. Number seven, we see that Melchizedek blessed God. Melchizedek loved God and made him happy as well. He's a two-way intercessor. He's a mediator. He's a priest, just like Jesus does also. Jesus pleased God. How do I know? Well, God said so a couple times. On when Jesus was baptized and at the Mount of Transfiguration, both times God said from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And in John 8, 29, he says, And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things which please him. See, Melchizedek, he had it going on with the Father. He knew God and he was pleasing God. He was loving God, just like Jesus. Why did Jesus come and die for you? Because he loved his Father. And way back in eternity past, sometime, when they looked in and he said, your name, and he said, God the Father said, what about blah? What about them? What about Susie or Frank? 
And Jesus said, well, they're a sinner. And the father said, son, I love them. Would you make this right? Would you go down there and die on the cross for Frank and Susie, for Sean? And Jesus said, would that make you happy? Because I live to make you happy. I live to honor my father. And so Jesus said, yep, on my way. And I think maybe he showed up a little early with this guy Melchizedek. At least his spirit. You know, it's, it's amazing what we see here. Now, I'm going to read to you guys from the book of Hebrews. And I'm not going to teach it to you. I'm not going to expose it. Like, you know, I'm not going to break it down too much. I'm just going to read to you. What we've done today is we have just taken those three verses with Melchizedek, and we've, we've dug in. We put it in our pipe. <laughs> well, the author of the book of Hebrews spends an entire chapter on these three verses. And I'm going to summarize it for you at the end, but I'm just going to read it for you so you kind of get an idea of the depths of treasures that are hidden in the Word of God. This whole idea of Melchizedek is a treasure for us. Remember, our exhortation at the beginning of this sermon was, consider how great this man was, Melchizedek. So we've done that, right? We've considered. Now let's read what the author of Hebrews tells us. We're going to start in chapter 6, verse 19. We're going to read all the way through. This hope we have as an anchor to the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Then we start chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, the king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abram, Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually." And he says, now consider how great this man was. So he just kind of summarized the, what we know about Melchizedek. And he says, you know what, though? You know what? He's, he's like the Son of God who remains a priest forever. This is what he's saying. To whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi, who received the priesthood, who have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he received them, of whom it is witness that he lives." Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there of another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron or Levi? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect 
On the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. We're almost done, guys. So, by so much more, Jesus has become surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he also is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Who does not need daily as those priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then the people's. For this he did once and for all. And he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. But the word of an oath, which came after the law, appoints the Son, who has been perfected forever. So, <laughs> that's deep stuff. That is tough. And I, I read it to you to encourage you to study to show yourself approved as a servant of God and to know what these things are for you. God has given this to you to know. And I, I'm, to summarize the teaching there, I'm going to read something from Andrew Murray. An, uh, in the 1800s, one of the greatest authors and pastors of, of ever. He says, I do not know how I can better set forth the glory of our blessed Lord Jesus as he accomplishes this, the real object of his redeeming work. And as he takes entire possession of the heart, he has brought and bought and won and cleansed a dwelling for his father. Then by pointing out the place he takes and the work he does in the case of a soul who is being led out of the old covenant bondage with its failure into the real experience and the promise and the power of the new covenant. So again, let me break that down to its most simplest form. Has Jesus taken entire possession of your heart? Do you feel free to commune with your Father through bread and wine? Is there any part of you that shrinks back in fear, that doesn't understand? Any part of you that thinks the law the old covenant, the standards that I have so brutally failed, condemn me. And because of those things, I'm afraid to go over here. I'm afraid to have communion with my Father. All you need to do to be freed from that is look to Jesus. He takes care of everything. Hebrews explains to us that your friend is your high priest. Jesus, or you can call him Melchizedek if you want, he meets you on the road today just like he met Abraham, and he invites you to experience total freedom, total fellowship, total victory, total love, total forgiveness. Do you believe? I want you to spend one moment. I know we've gone long today, but I, there's something vital for us to consider left, okay? Consider for one moment if Abraham would have ignored Melchizedek, would have rejected his invitation to sit down and eat the bread and the wine. And instead, if he would have gone to the king of Sodom, whose name literally means rebellion. What if Abraham would have rejected the invitation? He would have missed out. He would have been lost. He would not have been blessed. He would not have had the bread and the wine. He would not have had that. And I want you guys to take this and put it in yourself and think, God is inviting me today to, to meet with him. 
Am I going to reject that? He's the priest. He's the one who's offering and inviting and saying, I've taken care of everything for you. Would you just come and meet with me? Why? Because I love you. Am I going to accept that? Or am I going to shrink back in unbelief and fear? Hebrews explains to us that all we need is done for us, moment by moment, by Jesus Christ. He is our priest today, according to the order of Melchizedek. He's not a priest that's always sacrificing. He did that once. Now he's just blessing, helping us experience his love. He's done it, and he will continue to do it forever. And you are free to just receive it and walk with your God. We have three more verses to read. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and you take the goods for yourself. So Abraham, remember, kicked all the king's butts up there and he brought back all the people that were taken captive. And so the king of Sodom is like, hey, you're pretty awesome there, Abram. Why don't you just give me my people and you can keep all my stuff. Everything that you captured, you can just keep. Let me bless you. Let me bless you. I hate God and I'm an idiot, but let me bless you. And Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I've raised my hand in an oath to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from the thread of a sandal strap and that I will take nothing that is yours, lest you say I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of these men that are with them. This is a type of Satan, the king of Sodom. He's a picture for us of Satan who comes to us and says, that's fine if you want to believe in God, but I want all the souls. I want all the people. I'll trade you riches even. And I'll bless you if you'll keep all that Jesus stuff to yourself. Abraham rebukes him by declaring, I don't care about stuff. All I want to be known for is that I'm a friend of God and all the people that are with me, they're going to know that. And I'm going to tell them. He doesn't want anyone to think about Sodom when they think about him. Abraham's like, no, I am not going to associate myself with you. This is an opportunity for Abraham to increase his kingdom, to get ahead in the world, to become more secure and protected. But he says, I'd rather be poor and right with God than rich and living with sin in my heart. That's what he says. And Abraham, he valued his friendship with Melchizedek more than anything in the world. This life is full of wars. We can't escape them, but Jesus will meet us and provide for us what we need to be right with God and to protect us from the temptations that Satan will throw us our way. And that's the story of Genesis chapter 14. 